TED Audio Collective. Hi, my name is Mihir Desai, and I'm a professor at Harvard Business School and Harvard Law School. On the After Hours podcast, I join my colleagues to discuss the most important events happening at the intersection of business, society, and culture. We tackle everything from quiet quitting to great startups to horrible startups to the future of finance to the latest economic policy debates. Find After Hours wherever you find your podcasts. I realized one day they believe that they have the right to be there and be in the room whether they're the best person for it or not. It's two different skills. That's its own skill set. And I don't have it. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Kirsten Vangsness talks about how she got into acting and playwriting in spite of being plagued by self-doubt. I feel like a frickin' fraud, and then you just push through it. I've been reading and loving Architectural Digest for as long as I can remember. The magazine and the website are the first places I go for design inspiration. So when I found out that the editors of Architectural Digest just launched the AD Pro Directory, the ultimate resource for matching designers with prospective clients, I knew I had to tell you all about it. Now, for the first time ever, AD's extensive community of homeowners and design enthusiasts can easily find and hire their favorite design professionals. The directory is a list of AD-approved architects, interior designers, and outdoor specialists that anyone in need of design services can access for free by searching by profession and location. If you're a design expert who is looking to grow your business and want a chance to be featured in AD, apply now. If you're a client seeking best-in-class design services, you can browse AD's extensive list of design experts. Want to be introduced to the best of the best? Explore the AD Pro Directory at architecturaldigest.com forward slash design matters. Penelope Grace Garcia is a survivor, a technical analyst of the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit. She has been shot, she's been arrested, she has been jilted, she has been kidnapped, all while helping to solve difficult cases. She's also the only character who has been on every episode of the show and in all of the spin-offs of the Criminal Minds TV franchise. She is played with heart and wit and great comic timing by the one and only Kirsten Vangsness. Kirsten is a stage actress who also sings. She's written plays and TV episodes and starred in her own one-woman shows. Penelope Grace Garcia is only the tip of the iceberg, and I'm here to plumb some of those depths. Kirsten Vangsness, welcome to Design Matters. Jeez, thanks. Very exciting. It's wonderful to have you here. And I have a question that I'm really curious about as my opening inquiry. 
is it true that you chose the name Fluffy as your confirmation name? Absolutely true. I I, uh, I actually wrote it in the Book of Common Prayer in Orange Crown on top of Teresa because I really desperately wanted to name a pet Fluffy, and that was far too pedestrian for my mother. So I, I was like, well, I'll name it. I'll name myself. And I, I did have this sort of round halo of fluffy hair so it it sort of it worked you grew up behind the main street on ramp of highway 190 next to the anderson fence company in porterville california yeah and i understand that you had a crush on harriet the spy as you were growing up i did why why harriet the spy because she's all the things like she's got that wonderful androgyny and the 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 glasses, the commitment to an outfit for the sake of of its uh, how it made you feel, not not necessarily that the glasses worked or the or the I can't remember what else she had on her the flashlight. I think the flashlight worked, but something like that and her dedication to writing and and her intuitiveness and her oh her just general chutzpah that I I certainly didn't have. I wished upon it, you know, to have it when I was when I was that age. And 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 the writing, the writing, the journal writing and the observing of people. So yeah, it was Simon LeBon, Harriet the Spy, and Kate Bush. That was it, it com- combine those, smush those into one being and that's your trifecta. Yeah. You're the daughter of elementary school teachers. Mm-hmm. Your father also sang opera and worked with the community theater. And I understand that you and your sister spent a lot of time there. And by the time you were about seven, you began playing old ladies on the stage. So why the old ladies? I was a weird kid. You know, people say that. Everyone says, like a lot of people say, like, oh, I was weird and I was bullied and I was strange looking. I really, really was. (laughs) It's not like a, it's not hyperbolic. Um, I've always shown how I'm feeling or what's going on with me on my body. And I grew up in a very chaotic household and I was storing information and experience and uh, my own thoughts on my body. And as a result, I had a real weird posture. And and I have this uh, sister who is now an elementary school teacher. And she's three and a half years older than me. And she's, she's but she's shorter. And she's more of like the Italian uh, side of the family. So she's green eyes and she's she can tan naturally. And and she was sort of like perky and bright. Uh, so my dad, like for instance, my dad would play Birdie in Bye Bye Birdie. And my sister would play one of the teenagers who was crazy about the star Bye Bye Birdie. And I would play one of the 70-year-old women who would be like, why is he? Or I would be one of the old ladies in Fiddler on the Roof or whatever because my demeanor was such that uh, I could, and I was so painfully shy. I just think the hunching over, it just fit really well because usually that part, you're just peas and carroting in the, in the corner. But I very quickly learned to love that environment very much. Just the irreverency of it all as an observer, really then, you know, the most in the shadows kind of observer that there could be. Yeah. Despite his interest in opera, your father didn't take care of his voice. He didn't have the career he wanted. Um, He lost his job. He became a gambler and an alcoholic. And the family ultimately had to exist on your mom's paycheck. And you've said that being so afraid of the choices he made made him cruel. And I thought that was such a kind and empathetic way of of talking about 
someone that did really cruel things to you. I'm I'm wondering how you got to that place where you could have that insight and empathy. I've, oh God, I've always been at that place. It's really weird because my childhood, my growing up, all of that is so, it, it survives so much my fantasy life of it. And God, I can't remember the name of that wonderful writer, a, a psychologist, Gabor. Is it Gabor Mate? My, I might be messing up his name entirely, but he just had a, a new book out, and he talks about how children in the same family have completely different upbringings. I've always simultaneously hated my father, deeply hated, wanted to murder him, and at the same time loved him. I mean, I love him like a father. I didn't have a father who did father things. I don't have one of those. I don't have that, but... Uh, I remember an Amanda Palmer lyric where she says, fear makes you cruel. I think the reason why I liked that lyric is because I'm like, yeah, so I even when I was little, and I got told all the time when I was a kid, you're so much like your dad, you're so much like your dad. And I didn't understand that, but like I had, I was so close with him. I was the one that when my parents would fight when I was very small, I would come in and like, try to talk it through. So I felt like I knew him so much. And and because I, I unfortunately spent time with him as a small child that where I was way adultified, I knew him. I mean, I felt like I was like a second wife and his therapist and a non-existent creature that sort of extended outside of him that was for his purposes. And so it's not like I... Ne- it's just there, like the empathy or the whatever, like, I, I don't know why, but I think I kind of lucked out out of my demeanor, out of the way my brain um, handled stuff. I know that people have every right to feel the way that they feel about their family members, you know, and people that have wronged them. And I certainly have a lot of feelings about it. It's just, um, I don't know why. The second I got the opportunity to not be around him, I took it. And and meaning I, you know, moved into somebody else's house when I was still a teenager. I insisted on having friends around and the whole time being told, you know, I'm being ridiculous and nothing's happening and, you know, you're crazy. And, and the thing is, is that the people close to me in that situation that are part of my family would still say that now. And we have to maintain this sort of like... It's very, it's hard because like they don't like it to be real. And I don't always know if it is real, but if I behave it, if it is, and I take care of myself as if it is, life got much better. So I don't know what to do. And I hope I answered that question. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting. Memory is such a, a strange and kind of circuitous thing. And apparently every time you remember something, you're remembering a memory. And right. however, I do want to say, having spent, I don't know, the last couple of weeks deeply researching your whole life and seeing everything you've done and your stories are really consistent, which really leads me to believe <laughs> that they're actually true. Thank you. I mean, I think that, and I think that's why I make things. I think that that's part of, I, I could, I'll do this, I'll make things, and I'll be doing 
some kind of performing. No one can take that ever away from me. Like you could pay me, you could not pay me, but I do it because it helps me process something. I mean, that's one of the best things about art. It's one of the things I know you always talk about on this is that it's so, the, the ability that it has to take information that you can't understand and alchemize it into something else is the only thing that really works. Yeah. I think that the people that don't remember things the way that we do, especially when they've imprinted in us in, in such a, a really formative manner, just don't remember it. And it's so fascinating because there are people in my family that remember things to the T and will tell me, you know, remember when you were four and I was this age? And it's like, I don't remember that at all. But all I know about all of that is I am not one of the people. There are people that say, oh, to be a child again and to re- <laughs> be in the warm embrace of it all. You could not. I will never. I, I am terrified of it during the pandemic. I All I thought about was all the children out there that are alone in places they can't get out of. Mm. Like, you can't. Like, it is not a safe space to me. And at the same time, I, I think it's kept me really... It keeps all of me, that Madeline and Lingle, you're every age you've ever been. It's kept all of my ages. They're all very close to me because I feel a, a deep responsibility to show them where we go. You know, I I don't know. I feel like sometimes I'm so cringe and so earnest because somebody else could have some really shitty things happen to them. And it's like, here I am being like, I think it's really great. And you can take care of them and show them all the good shit. And and. That's my experience, and I don't want to take away from other people's experiences. Well, but I read that you weren't ever allowed to shut a door in your house, so you had no privacy. Yeah, and that's, again, one of those things that I'm sure that this is... Yeah, but you ended up having... You you ended up losing the ability to relieve yourself for months and how to go to the doctor, which was then a re-traumatization of a body part that you were already getting trauma from with. So there's evidence right there, right? Hospital records. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I went to a pelvic floor physical therapist for years because I would punch people in the face if they were trying to touch me, even consensually. And the only way I could get by is if someone was non-consensually, I could somehow either man... Yeah. I mean, yeah. But there was no privacy in my house but then there would be these wonderful periods of time where no one would be around and that was like really precious to me in that part it's you know I was able-bodied and you know I don't know the 80s and all the children went and opened your house up with a key and you were fine like so I mean that actually felt really safe to me to just sort of wander around a room, pace back and forth by myself, telling, making up really dramatic stories. <laughs> that, I loved that. But then whenever there were people around, yeah, that w- there were no locks allowed to be. That You could shut a door, but you can't expect someone not to just come in. I was told multiple times that my clothes, my Christmas money I got belonged to my father. I mean, and he, he did that to sort of all all of us. I don't want to speak f- for them, and I, I want to be careful about that, but um, that was definitely my experience. Yeah, I don't recommend that. That's not a good form of parenting. <laughs> well, you said that scrambling around trying to manage the emotions of 
this one adult was so tumultuous, it became really hard for you to focus. And it also made you, um, but being able to sort of de-escalate tense situations um, made you feel valuable. Yeah. Um, And it's a skill you still have today. Yeah. And do you think that that's a good thing or a bad thing? Oh, I think it's both. I think it can be very good, but I I also think it's... um, to place your value in it, you know? I mean, I still do it. And I, but I, I also, I understand, you know, I play this character that is also very, very good at that, but, but is feistier, I think, than I am, that can tolerate um, things in a different way than I can. I can see everything all happening at the same time. And, and I appreciate that, especially the kind of job I have, because, you know, actors can be, this sort of this idea that we're just sort of, I don't know, myopically obsessed with ourselves. But when I'm in a room, it doesn't matter where I am, I will find the people that are, why is that person in the corner? What just happened right there? Like, I can see everything happening at the same time. And when used correctly, it's, you know, you're one of the helpers. When used incorrectly, no. But it's, so it's really important for me to always stay in a place of potency in like my essence qualities so that I don't, I'm not doing it from an icky place. You said that there became a point in your life where you spent a lot of time being Agatha Christie or Angela Lansbury in your own life in an effort to try and predict what might happen next in an effort to avoid it. And I think it's when we have to do that kind of sort of sleuthing Mm -hmm. that we become hyper aware. Oh, yeah. Did you feel that the abuse that you suffered was your fault? No. I mean, the straight answer is no. But, you know, the magical thinking that happens. I deeply appreciate my magical thinking. And Mm. I live in this body, and this body is a really lovely place to be. I've made it a lovely place to be. It can be a nightmare town, sure. But, like, I have things that I really believe in that are batshit crazy. Like, I really... Thought this through one time, like I thought, what if we go through these multiple lives and and my dad loved me so much that he decided to be the super villain in my life to create this horrible stuff that I had to transcend, that I have transcended, that I have alchemized into other things. And when I think about it like that, I'm like, well, I guess I made it happen because I asked. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and that's not true. Like, that didn't. But I refuse to believe that there is such a thing. I don't want to give people, I don't want to give anybody the power that there's such a thing as evil. I don't even, like, that's the funny thing about the show I'm on is, like, I don't even buy it. I, I think that monstrous people act in monstrous ways that make other people act like monsters. And behavior is despicable. Behavior is not okay. But I just believe in radical responsibility so much, my own. And I'm sure that that's a big flaw. But it also gets me through the day. So it's like, is it my fault? No. Do I think about it all the time that it that I did? I was always so interested in what was going on. And I always never wanted other people to be in the line of fire. And I have that flaw about me now too and i don't know if that's me trying to center myself in the drama or whatever i've gotten better about it but 
I really hope I'm making sense because you're really yeah no absolutely <laughs> I'm I'm you know I I was trying to decide as you were talking and I'm listening well should we talk about criminal minds now but I want to wait because there's so much more to talk about but I will say that I want to sort of put a pin in the notion of despicable behavior and what is it about those that have been treated despicably going one way yeah. or another. Yeah. And and then what a show like Criminal Minds does for the people that try to rise above it. Yeah. Because I think there's a place in our culture for that. Yeah. Um, you started keeping a journal when you were in the fourth grade. Mm-hmm. Were you writing stories? Were you recounting episodes from your life? I was writing about things that were happening. I mean, I have a Snoopy journal that's just like the sweetest little Snoopy journal with a lock, you know, and whatever. And you open it up and it's like, my mom and dad are bitches. I'm going to kill everyone. <laughs> I mean, it is lewd. It's terrible. My sister stole it one time and she wrote this very long diatribe. But, like, I counted how I felt I've always felt like if I can write it down and I can see it on a piece of paper because my memory is so strange and then to be, I'm going to say gaslighted uh, growing up and being told like that's not what happened. Kirsten, you lie. You have to take that when it gets told to you so much, you take that into into your world. So now I just, oh, I lie. Kirsten's a liar. Okay, got it. I'm just going to write in here what I want because it's not going to hurt anybody. And I can be as explicit as I need to be. And if I'm lying, okay. It gave me a place. And I just think it's so valuable for anybody. At first, it's a pain. But it's like there is somebody there reflecting back eventually. At first, no. But eventually, there's some. There's a witness. There's a something. And it... Ooh, I mean, it, I have. It took me a bit. I mean, I was bananas until my. <laughs> I mean, I was bad bananas for for a while. Uh, uh, but you know, it's it's turned around. It takes a bit, but yeah, it really oh, helped yeah. me. I feel that way too. I was bad bananas till I was about forty. Okay, that makes me feel good. <laughs> it's gonna maybe say, maybe even into the forties. Yeah, no, into the forties. Yeah, I was making yeah. some terrible decisions, oh, yeah. some yeah. dangerous, terrible decisions, and you know, I. To be sweet or to be nice or I hate the word nice to be kind or whatever. But then like even in the background in the shadow, having someone over here that I'm intimate with that knows I'm terrible so that like out in the world I'm celebrated. But over here, this is how who I really am. And this is how I and and that split that I grew up with because in my house it was so you don't you don't share and I couldn't help but share and that's the other reason why the journal is very helpful is because there are no secrets I've been told I'm a liar my whole life and yet I cannot keep things about me to myself I have to, I'm compelled to share so it's it's a weird dichotomy <laughs> and the journal helped well, it's so interesting that you were writing so much, but you was you were also painfully shy. I know that by the time you entered eighth grade, you were so shy you stopped talking. Yeah, um, and you did poorly in school. And by the time you went to Cerritos High School, uh-huh. your mom gave you an ultimatum: you had to take shop or drama. Right now, I find this so interesting. 
Why did she choose those particular <laughs> topics? Well, I think that the I think that the getting me out of my shell, and I had already since I had done the community college, and when I was in junior high in Porterville, I really did love drama class, but I was bullied, thrown in trash cans, and uh, uh, you know, I was the girl that people invite. You know, I got I got invited to one sleepover once, and it was legitimately just. This is the girl we're going to terrorize. Like it was a rel- it was relentless and it was slightly better than being at home, but I didn't like it. You know what I mean? I was I I did, you don't know when you're going to get punched in the face and I would oh, and I would make it worse cuz I would say things like I'm like Gandhi, I'm a peacekeeper. I would while you're getting punched or I would make jokes about her mm. or whatever and I would make it it would become more of a thing cuz I was so I mean I think I still am invested in being a little bit of a weirdo, but like really I was so weird. And when we moved, we had moved and I was like, I can't take it. Like, and we moved to Cerritos and Cerritos was, I remember that people had money and you're like, there were girls in whole outfits in yellow. I thought, how much money do you have to have? You can have a whole outfit in the color yellow. Um, and I, I just decided to stop. So, and I was not, it was very hard to pay attention in school. And I had, I did my my parents were in tumultuous situations, so they're not really paying attention and sort of like every person for themselves. But my mother is wonderful and was struggling in this relationship with a guy that I really think, you know, she came from a place of like, you're supposed to be with a man to, you know, for the girls to be in a stable. So I really think she was trying. I mean, I know she was trying. She was trying really hard. But I think that, you know, she has these moments my whole my whole life where she's just done these sort of incredible things that someone else might be like, what is that? It's like, she's the perfect mom for me. And that was like one of those things where she was like, you can do this or do this. And I, I didn't want to do shop because that seemed scary and drama seemed uh, a different kind of scary. Shop seemed boring, scary and rules and drama just seemed like terrifying, but like I'd want to, I would love to do it. But like, I've always had that thing of like, Oh, I'm not invited to that party. And and that seemed like nah, no one wants me. I'm not the person that gets to go to that party. And and uh and then I went to class and our first two assignments, we didn't have to talk. And I got an A and it was pantomime, I, right? Yeah, yeah. And I never gotten an A on anything. And just I mean, I like teachers were always oh, Kirsten's really creative or whatever, and they liked me and all that, but like just to get an A in something for just trolloping around in my imagination, that was, it was, yeah. And I was hooked. In 10th grade, you got the part of a heroin dealer in a school play called Juvie. Yeah, I did. About a juvenile detention center. And you've talked about how your teacher put post-it notes all over the classroom before you went on stage. Why did she do that? Uh, it sort of like builds you up. And it was like quotes, Stanislavski quotes, all this. And it was real. I mean, those entering drama was like, oh, this is the place. And, you know, I have the crush on my friend James, who I then eventually moved into his his house and, and lived with him. My other best friend, Michael, who transitioned to Nine Physical in 96, but was just a genius. And they were both in the play with me. And of course, in this version of Juvie, there was only a set of bars separating the male and the, the female, the, the, you know, it's binary, but uh, in in the juvenile detention center. And uh, she had one post-it, which in all it said was, love the art in yourself and not yourself in the art. Mm. And that was 
everything to me because I think that part of my, like, I'm not invited to the party was like, I love this thing so much. I don't know if I'm good enough or worthy enough. I mean, I still have that so deeply, that kind of weird impostery. Kind of, it's gross. But like that kind of gave me permission and I understood it. It was like, oh, that's how I believe art is. It's like, I'm not special. Everybody's special. There's this big open space that it's my job to keep as open as possible, but it's it's got on it like little roots sticking out and like stuff from your life and your own, my own, you know, stuff. And then when whatever that juice is that you create from comes pumping up from the earth through me and out my mouth or out my hands or whatever, it's covered with my special sauce, but it's not me that makes it special. It's that, you know, so in that also, it since I felt so gross, and I can go through that so much, the art isn't gross, and I get to be a part of it, and it loves me just like it loves everybody else, and it gets to go through me and through everybody. That felt like the safest, wildest thing in the world. Like, that's what I serve forever. You won an award for your part in Juvie for Outstanding Cast Member. (laughs) I did. And I believe you still have that award in your living room, right? I absolutely do. (laughs) Brass, comedy, and tragedy mask with a fake marble uh base. It's true. I do. (laughs) That's when you knew you wanted to be involved in drama, theater. Yeah. At being an actor for the rest of your life. But you were also convinced that in order to do that... You would be a starving artist subsisting on cat food for the rest of your yep. life. I was I was told, again, this wonderful thing about my mom. She was like, you're never going to make a living doing that. Like, it's literally impossible. And I was like, yep. Like, I just kind of knew, and that was fine. But it's so crazy because it was the thing I was good at. Like, so I was getting, like, I got a little like a hundred dollar scholarship. I almost flunked out of high school, and I got this scholarship. And I remember the kid... um, Paris Maida, who got a, a perfect score on the SAT, was sitting next to me at the award ceremony, and he said, I really thought you were good in that play. And I was like, Paris Maida? No, he's like the smartest kid in school. What? Like, I got accolades for it. And then I, you know, went to community college and went to college and was, like, getting attention for this thing that I kind of knew, like, it's never gonna, I'm never going to be able to do it. And then I got an audition for a movie, and Mally Finn big casting director. Her daughter casts, I think, the Star Wars trilogy things now, but she casts like Titanic and stuff. I got an audition with her at Paramount Studios and I went in and I did my audition and uh, she said, uh, so what are you going to do when you graduate college? And I was like, I'm going to go be an, be an actor. You know, I'm saying it very tentatively. And she says, no, I mean, you're not old enough to be a character actor. You're not fat enough. You're not young enough. You're not pretty enough to be... Um, you know, the main girl. Like, she listed off all these things. And I walked out of the room, and I was like, well, there for a moment, I thought, like, I can do this. And then I was like, nope, I absolutely can't. And But it was the most freeing thing in the world. I was like, oh, okay. Okay. Because I think she she ended up saying, like, if you're lucky, in 10, 15 years, you'll you'll age into being a character actor. She wasn't wrong. Um, and, it, and, it was, and it was very freeing to be like, okay, I just need to have, like, 16 day jobs. But every time I quit acting, I was miserable. So I always say to people, like, you 
if you open that Pandora's box, we're meant to create whatever it is. And you you get your you have your day job, you have your thing, but you take care of that art because it's not the person who's on the TV show or on the Doritos commercial or whatever that's the actor. It's the person that's sitting in their living room with their friends reading a play or 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 fit the, at, at their community theater doing. It's the art that matters. It's like that is so valuable. So for me, that was like more galvanizing and like you cannot take this away from me. I just won't get paid for it. You have written that you walked out of that audition with this woman and you heard a big cracking noise, yes. which was your dreams. <laughs> dying. Yes. <laughs> so what what gave you the motivation to go on? I mean, was it, I, I mean, you, waiting 15 years to age into being a character actress is not a lot of motivation. It's not, mo- it's, it, it, it shifted because motivation is such a strange thing, I think, in general, even, even now. Something you love to do, like a dream you love to do. And by the way, I live down the street from where that my dreams were cracking in a place in town where I never thought I would be able to live. So it it does sort of happen, I think. But like, I just, especially in Los Angeles, there's such a huge disparate between, abo- you know, the above the glass ceiling and below. It's like, you can still make things. So the, the, the desire went from, oh, I'm going to be an actor and make money doing this to I'm going to be an actor. So that's not stopping me from auditioning for every play I can think of or, you know what I mean, saying yes to things. That didn't stop me from doing that. And that's what I wanted. And and it was kind of freeing because I've always been terrible at schmoozing. I'm terrible at my, you know, spelling correctly on my resume, all of that stuff. So it kind of like took that off. Um, and I just went toward creating like that's what I did and yes it's terrifying because you're like how am I gonna pay rent you know what I mean like I lived in a $500 a month uh, guest house that I could not afford and never made my rent but I did it and I was happy and that's one of the other things I always think I always think about like what's the worst thing that's gonna happen if you go after that thing you want and everyone can say like oh have you met Kirsten she's 95 and she's she's never become a famous actress, but gosh, is she happy? I just didn't even think about it, like how to get there. I just created stuff. Does this um, agent or audition person know about your career now? Oh, I think Mally Finn transitioned to non-physical, but I do. Her ex-husband uh, was one of the teachers at Cal State Fullerton, and it is really strange, you know, because now everybody at my old schools and stuff like that, it's like, oh, Kirsten, you know, and it's it's nice. I mean, when I was in college, I definitely felt like I was getting, and, and in high school, I felt like I was getting accolades for what I did from teachers and stuff like that. It It is funny when people treat you differently, you know, and I remember, like I said, I remember all the ages. I don't hold grudges or anything like that. It's just... I'm very aware of how how fickle all that is and and whatever. And th- this whole thing is so wonderful to get paid to do the thing I love. There's parts of it though that are strange, like like that, where like everybody likes you. I a lot of people did not like me. <laughs> you know, like I was I was not wanted in the room. So it's very strange, and I still don't always know that I'm wanted. And now it's such bullshit because I, I think it's so part of my personality that I think I've decided 
that it's part of my charm. So, oh my God, what would happen if I actually thought I was wanted in places and then I wouldn't be like, it's a whole fucking mind trip. Yeah, no, I know that too. I feel like (laughs) if I, if I ever really felt the way I know other people feel about me, people that love me, I think I'd be intolerable. Yeah. I worry about that too. Maybe we can make a pact. (laughs) That sounds good. (laughs) I'll make a pact with you. I would absolutely do that with you. Absolutely. (laughs) So you talked about all of these other jobs you got. So uh-huh. after you graduated with a 4.0 average uh-huh. from and college. And I almost out of, uh, yeah. 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 So. And afterward, you got many different jobs. And this is just some of what I found. You worked at a group home with kids that couldn't succeed in foster care. Mm-hmm. You worked at a nature center. You were a substitute teacher at a public school. You were a bank teller, a grant writer, a personal assistant, and an animal feeder at the zoo. Uh-huh. What I was, was also, I worked at a murder mystery dinner theater. I taught children how to babysit and how to not smoke while I was a smoker for five minutes. Um, <laughs> I worked at, oh, I, you said banker. There's other ones, but those are, those are, yeah. Which was your most favorite and which was your least? Uh, most favorite would definitely be substitute teacher or working at the group home. Both of those were um the group home was so interesting because it was before, um, you know, now you actually need a degree to do that. But the law was such, it really taught me a lot about my own childhood and to interface with kids and and help them. And it kind of helped me. And I found that I then took that and then I went into substitute teaching with this sort of superpower where I'm going to like you and I'm not going to like your behavior. I'm not going to shame you, but I will absolutely do what I say. So if I give you a warning and I tell you something and you do, I will absolutely do that. You know, so kids really trusted me and I had that real like Mary Poppins kind of thing. So I loved that. And the job I hated the most would be I was a banker, uh, a banker. I worked as a bank teller. Um, I was not a banker. And I had one outfit that I got from Marshall's that fit me that looked official and I would wear it almost every day and I would consistently be over or under by 10 grand like easily easily (laughs) just every day and then I would get in trouble and then I would panic so that was probably my least favorite job yeah oof yeah. While still working at all your day jobs, you got a role in the 1998 film Sometimes Santa's Gotta Get Whacked uh-huh. and a role in the science fiction television sitcom Phil of the Future. And you were also doing improv shows in Anaheim Hills. And then you started to watch all your friends that were acting majors in college go get real jobs. Uh-huh. So they started to quit or yeah, they were yeah. getting you know, real start, acting? No, people start realizing like, oh, this acting thing isn't paying or the whatever. So they, they get another job, you know, and then you've got some people that that do book work and stuff. And I was having like a real hard time because I was I was living in Anaheim. I was living more like in Orange County, like Long Beach. And I was driving up to sometimes do plays in L.A., sometimes do theater in Orange County, just wherever I could I could do it, I was doing it. And I would be around people and someone would, like, book a job on, I don't know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer or book a job on a commercial. And I'd be like, they're not even, they're not even that great. Or sometimes it would be, but I'd be like, what? Why are they? 
how come I can't? Like, because I would be told, like, you're very good at this. And I would win. We would do these monologue festivals at one of the theater companies I was in where you'd get, like, $50 if you won, and it was $50 to do it. So I could do it. I could win every time, then take the money and do it again to, like, meet casting people and stuff. But I couldn't book anything. And it was, and I realized one day, I was like, oh, my gosh. They believe that they have the right to be there and be in the room whether they're the best person for it or not. It's two different skills. That's its own skill set. And I don't have it at all. And I don't know if I ever will. Like, But that was amazing. And then also coming to terms with the fact that this thing I love so much, the idea of getting paid for it or to be responsible for a certain thing, that that was a definite, that's how I was getting my own way. And this is where I mean, like, yes, it sucks and probably is dumb to say that everything is my fault. However, the radical responsibility aspect of it where you go, oh, this is what I'm doing wrong and attacking that. For me, it's a more active way to live than saying, oh, it's because Hollywood doesn't understand me. It was like, oh, this is what I'm doing wrong. And I kind of got into either, well, okay, I guess I don't know how to do that. And maybe I'll learn. But that was very eye-opening to me. So what do you mean by radical responsibility? I mean, like, <laughs> what I wanted to say is it's all my fault, but that that's probably not the right way to say it. I mean that I have this universe in here that's mine. This is mine. This is like I tell my nieces, like when they were in high school and they'd do stuff that I'd think you're not going to like that you did that, you know, in a few years. I would say, look, you know, one of my nieces, her name is Lindsay. I was like, it's Lindsay Town population one, and you're the mayor, and you're the constituents, and you're everything. So that's how I feel about me. Because, like, I really, I had my own way of doing things growing up. Like, there was nobody out there advocating in a way I wanted them to. Like, I've figured it all out from just, like, in me, population me, and, and I, I, you know, a lot of times I felt like everything was my fault. So if it's all my fault, it's also, well, I guess I should work on the, I'm going through it in real time right now. I guess I should work on the, like, I did it too. But um, I like to think that if I, if, if it's my universe and I take responsibility for everything, I just, it makes me feel more powerful. I read this book one time and I'm now pals with him called The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. And he talks about upper limiting and your happiness threshold. And I don't even want to give anything away because you're nodding. So you know what I'm talking about. I want everyone to go get that book and read it. But like that, that kind of like, what's so wrong with thinking that I made it all happen? It's worked for me. And it look, it, it's completely insane. But it works for me. And I'm not trying to say that it works for everybody. But like, that kind of radical responsibility of like, it's up to me to take care of this universe and anything that goes on with me. I'm going to assume that I chose this this moment that's happening right now. I'm going to act like I chose it myself. You know what I mean? That's an Eckhart Tolle quote. But like, I'm going to act like this is, and I think that that's what I mean by, by it. It's so interesting because I, I vacillate between 
thinking that everything is my fault and mm-hmm. thinking that nothing is my fault. Yes. Oh, I think I absolutely do too. And But like, look, we're doing this interview and you're going to ask me questions and that persona, which I do think is me most of the time, is going to come out and I'm going to I'm going to be the upstanding girl who says radical responsibility. And when I'm not here, I'm going to think, you know, because also radical responsibility means I'm responsible for how much cake I eat or mm. whatever. And I like to think that, like, it's not fair and that other people get to eat more cake than I don't know. You know what I mean? So it's it's not true. It's what I want. It's my religion, a part of my religion of choice. Absolutely. Of I think I want to be the girl with the most cake, but I don't want to gain any weight when I eat it. That's right. That's, that's the it. other. That's, that's the lost it. line of that whole album yep. song right there. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get Courtney on the line. Yeah. <laughs> um, when when you were 33 years old, you got a call from a friend who told you about a role for a scene in a television pilot called Quantico. Mm-hmm. And you were asked to read for a part for a character named Garcia, which was originally written for a young Latino man. Mm-hmm. What made your friend call you? <laughs> so uh, I had done a lot of theater, as I said, and a friend of mine, Gina Garcia Sharp, called me and said, do you want to come in for this? She was working for the casting director, and she was like, you're never going to get this part. But she had been she's a wonderful actor and been working on the other side of the table to kind of figure out, like, how does this work? So... Your job also being an associate like that is to bring in other actors that you know to be like, look, to make, just be like, look, I know good actors. So the the idea of come in, make my friend look good, very freeing. That's what she needed. And they needed these, it was very last minute because they realized the show, they were shooting the pilot. They had already cast the guy. They had filmed him and then realized the show's too guy heavy. We only have one woman. We need a woman right there. So she called. Now this is when I was 33. I'm now 50. So do the math. And we need to talk about the elephant in the room that a Norwegian girl would never be playing Penelope Garcia if it was happening now. And that's the correct thing. Am I super grateful for it and all of that? Absolutely. But I am aware of the benefits that white privilege has bestowed upon me. And I want to say that out loud. Um, So I went in and go make my friend look good and say these two lines. And then you're cast in this pilot and you're going to be on it for two seconds and they flew me to Canada and I had to find a birth certificate because I had never been out of the country and I was terrified and I go in this room and I you know, memorize my lines so it's this technical stuff they say bring your own clothes I'm a size I'm somewhere between like a size 12 and a size 16 and that is a weird magical unknown size in Hollywood they think zero or 22 it's like the middle part doesn't exist so I brought in my own clothes and I didn't have a suit. I didn't have anything. They were like, what are these? And I dressed like a space pirate. And so then they put me in a green sweater and uh, they sat me down and they said, say these words. And they, Do you know Shamar Morris? No, I know. He's very cute. You're talking to him. And I was scared out of my mind. And I said the words. And I remember the director coming over and saying, could you be funny? And I was like, I can be funny. And I, again, I'm being paid for the thing I love. And I do it, and uh, uh, I think I was—I don't remember what happened, um, and then that was supposed to be it. And I remember when I got done, I shook the hand of the writer, and as I was holding his hand, and this is the—I don't do these things as much anymore, but this is things I have to train out of myself. I grabbed his hand as I was shaking his hand, and I put it to my own forehead, and then I proceeded to thunk my own forehead and say repeatedly, did I butcher your words? Did I butcher your words? And then he said, he patted my hand and he said, 
I'll see you back in LA. I thought, oh, I don't know what that means. <laughs> and then a few months later, they did a, a second episode and they, they asked me to come for the second episode. And then I did the second episode and then I tested really well, apparently. And I got to keep going. I actually have been in all Criminal Lines episodes except episode five oh, of the first season. I didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most people don't. I think they mentioned me in, the, in that. But when, when I wasn't on episode five, I was like, oh. What's funny is my mom and my sister had planned an intervention for me. They were going to sit me down. They, they got a, a hotel room in Ojai. I remember they were spending this money to get this hotel room. And they told me it was a pre-tell intervention. We're going to tell you you need to quit acting. You need to quit acting. And I had to call them and say, I got this job. And they were like, you have to cancel. You have to say no. Kirsten, you can't You can't keep doing this. You can't keep lying to yourself. I said, no, no, no. This is a real job. I'm taking it. And I went and I did it. And, and this was the job that it was. <laughs> so Garcia the Latino man became Penelope Garcia uh -huh. because the TV executives thought the pilot didn't have enough female characters. Mm -hmm. What did you say in those two lines to get them to... I mean, you weren't even in any kind of no. interesting attire no. to... No, I, and I tested... I remember them saying, like, there's these knobs. You know, they have people watch it. And then they said that my knob got turned as much, if not more, than Mandy's. It was like a, a Mandy Patinkin. It was like 100%. And my only answer is that... Uh, I don't know. I just think I'm... I was different looking than what people were used to seeing, and maybe that was it. Also, they paired me with someone very traditionally attractive. And I'm not saying I'm not, I'm not trying to say anything about myself. I'm saying that, like, usually someone traditionally attractive, I think more like of a size of a woman. We tell these stories that men are attracted to, like, women that are much smaller than them. And that is a lie. And so I think that maybe that's shown that like the sizes of people can be diverse and attraction can be diverse, that people really took to that. And me and Shamar, the, when we shot that second episode, we had a scene together. And even before, when we were in the in the table read, we were joking around. And that joking around, one of the writers heard, and they ended up putting it in the script. And then we were in, the, we were in that second episode together with these lines that were very flirty and we both realized like we have so much chemistry and we get along just weirdly well not not weirdly it was just like we don't know each other and it was like we just knew each other and that I think helped me keep that job because he's so charismatic on screen and I got to sort of be his necessary thing and Lois Lane to his Superman yeah and he really treated me like that, which is, I think, the thing that's super valuable about this. It wasn't like, it was a real, genuine, not placating, not anything like that. It's like a real thing. And I and that was, I think, was super great. And I think that that's what kept me on the show. It was the mix of that and like, they did borrow from me, meaning the costume designer, BJ Rogers, did a bang up job of that. And that was a lot of her. But she was originally putting me in one kind of thing, and then the writers would see me, you know, go out of my dressing room and, like, can she wear that? Like, and so they started borrowing some of my clothes, and then she was, meanwhile, kind of creating it. And and then I was hoping that I got to keep the job, so I kept leaving props on her desk, which by the end and now on the show is like a living space. I put things there that fans have given me um, when they come to see plays, homemade pens, all kinds of things. So it was like 
I thought, well, if they fire me, I'm going to have to come back and get all this stuff back. So um, it was kind of like a job security kind of a thing. But I think that that mix of like, I'm a very do-it-yourself person. Like plays I write, things I do, I like to like do it all myself. So like I put that on that, you know, too, because they at first they didn't give her much. And I wanted, I could see who she could be. And then they let me keep making her. You really created her, though, in so many ways. Yeah. You brought her to life. I mean, I think it. it what's so great about it is she's like a lesson in yes and. Because, you know, the writers write something. I'm like, oh, okay. Okay, so that's true now. Oh, oh, that's true now. But I would come in and I would like, I'm going to change this line and I'm going to put it like this. Or I'm going to make it like this. And I'm a theater girl, so I can do something in one take. So they come in and they prepare for like, okay, we've got, Kirsten's got to do two pages of exposition. This is going to take us two hours. And I'd pop it out in one take and we'd be done. And then I would say, can I say it this other way that I memorized it? Because I added this word. They'd be said, that word doesn't sound even a real word, Kirsten. Yeah, but, or I would, me and Shamar would call each other and be like, okay, if you say this, I'm going to say this. We'd rehearse our scenes on the phone. And then I'd come in and be like, no, I already talked to him. And he said I could do this. So they were yes-anding me. I was yes-anding them. And then she just kind of blossomed into this thing, you know. And I'm quite honored that I get to be her guardian because I think she's super special. Absolutely. She has become really a sort of archetype in every sort of criminal procedural. There's always a really unusual, edgy, genius, subversive character now. Yeah, yeah. And it's all based on Yeah, and on when this. you think about it, it's like Money Penny, um, what was it, Mitchell or whatever from Alias, Abby from NCIS. But I was definitely her, she was definitely part of that whole like brainiac. Yeah, but Money Penny was traditional. Exactly. But I feel like that was that was the closest they would allow us to get. And then you go into this, which is like this woman who is truly her own thing and like a like she's her own thing like and and no one is like and and what i love is i've heard that like behavioral analysis at quantico felt like they could be a little more who they wanted to be because she could you know she was like that and i don't know anything about computer analytics so i was so happy that like they felt as seen as they did because that's always been really important to me. And I also think it's really important to highlight women who can do those kinds of things, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's also what I appreciate so much about how you and Shamar engaged with each other because he was so clearly in awe of your brilliance and your beauty that it's showed an entire world that women don't only have to look a certain way or be a certain way to be interesting to yeah. the opposite sex. Absolutely. And for me, I had to learn that in real time. I remember uh, my dad had gotten sick. He he was, I mean, it sounds bad, but he was always dying. And so he'd be like, oh, he's dying and you know, go and go to the hospital and, you know, whatever. And it was one of those times it was like second episode, third episode. And I, I had been at the hospital and whatever, and I had gotten a sleep and I had stayed at a friend's house. I had to be at work the next day and I was late. And I, I mean, if you ask anybody at work, I've been on 320 some episodes. I've been late like twice. And so I was late. And uh, I remember they, because they were concerned. They were, I was new to the job and they were not happy that I was late and I didn't want to tell them what was going on. And so I went and I did my job as best as I could. And I remember driving home 
And I was like, I'm at choice right now. You can be the girl that you always have been, who sabotages everything, who doesn't believe that you have the right to be here, or you can just fucking pretend that you're this girl, this girl that this man thinks is, you know, this Shamar dude thinks is hot. You can just pretend. Who cares? And I was like, no, I can't because I'm still the girl who lives in this car, who can't keep it clean. I was like, you're just going to be that girl. There's never going to be a moment that I'm going to be outside my body and get to observe and be like, whoa, she's cool. Like, I'm never going to have that. And it was like a little sad, but then it was like, okay. And then I just like was able to like go in there and play an extended game of pretend, which I will argue it makes your life because at a certain point that pretend becomes real. And if that's what you got, like, why not? What's the harm? Absolutely. You know, I've been a long, long time fan of the show, as is my wife. And we also love Law & Order SVU. And over the years, when people ask, you know, what are your favorite TV shows? And I've always said Criminal Minds and Law, Order, Law and Order SVU. And there have been times where I actually have said that my childhood was like an episode of Criminal Minds and SVU. And people then question, why do you like these shows so much? They don't seem to get it. Like, why do you want to keep triggering yourself? And why do you want to keep doing something that's going to make you feel bad again? And I'm like, no, it's the opposite. Seeing the bad guys always get caught on these shows, seeing justice be done. I go to sleep feeling safer. And I'm wondering if that's something that you've heard from other folks. Oh, yeah. I, I, Joe Mantegna just sent us, and I mean, look. It's the greatest job in the world. I need to say that out loud. I work with people that are, like, genuinely my family. As I was driving here, I was getting 12 texts. When, when my phone lights up and it's, like, 47 text messages, I'm like, oh, Paget or Aisha or Joe. That we're very close. So Joe just got a thing from somebody who was in a harrowing, dangerous situation and actually used things that he learned from the show in this moment. And that's happened more than a few times. And, yes, I definitely feel that. I, for me to be in it and doing it is uh, is where I draw the line. It's hard for me to watch. I have such a big imagination that I will actually think my friends are in trouble. There's a part of my nervous mm -hmm. system that doesn't get it. But I agree with you. I mean, it's just, it's by the grace of God that my neural net made choices. You know, yes, I would like to think it's because of some things that I did too, but like I interface sometimes because of, uh, my life with someone who is very uh, borderline and had a very kind of similar tumultuous upbringing. And they are unpleasant and unhappy and, oh, all of that. And you're like, by the grace of God, my brain was able to turn things off or whatever. And I've got my own bag of rocks. I'm not saying that. But like, that to me is always like, there are monsters. There are people who beha behave monst monstrously. And that's the other thing I love about being Penelope is Penelope, you know, and that's, I definitely gave that to her. I There are rules to Penelope that I adhere to. I've never on that show, if they wrote the anything violent that they've unintentionally or on purpose sexualized, I, Penelope's not doing it. Like, I will take that line out. I will whatever. And they've always been very respectful about things like that that she sees the evil behavior and not the evil person, that she maintains that people were all, all of us were babies and all of us had horrible things, you know what I mean? And that like, you have to be able to see 
all of the thing. And I think that that makes her even more um, tenacious about, you know, no, you can't do that. <laughs> yeah. I, I appreciate that about her. Well, one other thing that I really appreciate is that they have over the years, given Penelope a sex life. Yeah, she was the first person, actually, who slept with anybody on the show, and she's made some real doozies of choices, and it's been really good for me. It was strange, because I came out right before I got the job, and I was like, okay, this is part of the thing that I need to handle, is that I didn't know I was gay, and I fell in love with this woman, and I was madly in love, and that was that, and I thought, oh, I figured it all out, and then I was doing this show, and it was really weird, because everyone's like, oh, Shamara was so cute, whatever, I was like, and that was the other reason, I was like, oh, I'm positively gay, because I love him, but I don't have any, nope, like, <laughs> who I'm going home with is what I, all I want, I don't, nope, nope, don't want any of these people, I'm around all these very good-looking people, nope, just want this, Everything seemed to line up. It all made sense. And and the show actually through <laughs> through time, I've like, oh, and then Garcia. I Garcia is absolutely queer. And I've always known that. But I was like, oh, but she's not gay. And then to kind of come full circle and be like, oh, wait, no. I, okay, I, I also want to go out with men sometimes and then women. So, okay, now I, I'm sticking with this one heteronormative relationship and I'm a queer person. And... I have come to peace with that. Then I get to watch Garcia kind of be that. I've, she she kind of is up there doing stuff that I'm sometimes like running toward that nobody even knows I've built this sort of Bible for her. But I know, and it informs choices. You know what I mean? And, you know, the entire time I had a, a an impeach the motherfucker already uh, sticker in, in her office that no one knew about. And then anytime someone would find out, I would get a new one and put it up like and like that that whole desk has been nothing but like a just a progressive manual of like yeah, it's gonna <laughs> need to go racism in like, someday. It's, it's a whole thing yeah yeah um in addition to acting in all but one of the episodes of the entire series including the new series that's recently come back thank goodness um you have also co-written five of them including the first series finale which was incredible. What first inspired you to try your hand at writing for the show? I was, I thought it was an impossible feat. And we were in contract negotiations, which are a fascinating thing where, you know, you, your people say they want this much and then the studio says we'll give them this much. So we were going through that. And look, I'll do this for free. I don't care. However, it was interesting to me that we had gotten to a point that I was sort of, because people had gone and come back, you know, there were people that were more senior than me, but they had they had gone and come back. So in that going and coming back, I was more senior. So I, I had become the most senior female in the room temporarily. And why were we not getting paid as much as the men? So this was a, con I was like, yeah. if someone can tell me, now I get it for me. Because this is the first job I've had, but that person has had all these other jobs, and this person has all these other jobs. And then, so you need to explain that to me. And they weren't giving me answers, and I was to the point that I was like, I just want to conversate. Just ABC, CBS, just call me up, and we can just talk about it. And once you tell me why, then maybe, but I don't get it. I just don't get it. I'm not trying to be greedy. I'll do this for—but that don't make no sense, because the only thing I can see that's different is— 
organs. Like, again, if, if one of the other two women who had way more work under their belt, they were getting paid more, I could wrap my head around that, but I couldn't. And I had been very vocal about it. And they kept trying to, like, eke it up and try to please me. And I was like, no, you don't seem to understand. You're going to pay them as much as me. And that's the end of this conversation. Like, they didn't seem to get it. And then they bumped it. They, I got my way, but not exactly. Like, I was still, I, I was going to say yes. But my boss called me and she said, what do you think about writing, co-writing an episode with me? And she's like, I can, I can do that. They're, I don't think they're going to go any farther in this, but I can do that. And I was like, okay. And, <laughs> and so I did. And I was terrified in my mind. And, you know, I'm not, my first uh, drafts of things are literally like, you know, Rossi. You know, that's the name of a character on a show. I'll write Rossi and then walks in and says something relevant. The next character. <laughs> they say something to agree with him. Third character. Says something completely o- opposite to disagree. That's an anecdote about a killer. Like, I would write out like that and then, like, fill it in. I'm good, though, at writing scenes that had to do with interpersonal stuff. And Erica knew that about me, so we just would flip. Like, I'd write an act, she'd write an act, and then it would swap. And then she'd clean mine up. And then hers are perfect. Um, so I'd like add a joke or something like that. But that's how we've done it. But she's one of my dearest friends. She's just a lovely human being who happens to be brilliant and have like the uh, just the most creatively disturbing ideas to write these episodes about. So we talk about our families and, you know, I've told told her all my relationship problems. I've braided her hair so many times. Like, you know, we just sit and talk and eat potato chips and like write these episodes. So it's just an exercise in hanging out. And then somehow or another, we've popped these episodes out that, that um, I'm really happy that my name is lucky enough to be on them. Well, you've often referred to your work on Criminal Minds as your fancy day job. Um, and I want to talk about some of the work you do when you're not doing your fancy day job. Here are just a few of the things that you've made. This is a, a bit of a, a bit of a monologue I'm going to make now. <laughs> you were the star and executive producer of the film noir spoof Kill Me Deadly in 2007. You starred in the West Coast premiere of Neil LaBute's Fat Pig at the Geffen Playhouse, for which you received a Best Actress Garland Award. You, you received another ovation Best Actress nod for the show Everything You Touch at Boston Court, an L.A. Weekly Best Playwright of the Year nomination for your production of Potential Space and won the Los Angeles Drama Circle Best Comedic Actress. You wrote a one-person show titled Mess, which, by the way, Neil Gaiman has called his favorite one-person show ever, which you performed at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and was greeted with five-star reviews and sold-out shows. You also created a two-season show on YouTube during COVID titled Kirsten's Agenda. Congratulations on all of this work, as well as some of the other work I haven't gotten to yet, which we're <laughs> going to talk about now. <laughs> okay? Yeah, that, that sounds, when you put it in a list like that, I'm like, oh, she's done things. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I want to I want to talk about your one-woman show, Mess. It's a very intense, beautiful, I think autobiographical show with a lot of trauma and vulnerability and emotion. What was your motivation for doing this one-woman show, and how did you pull it off? How did you put it all together? I am a bit of a mess. I've had to embrace that about myself. Like, 
you know, I need to see everything out so things will be out a lot. I talk in a very circuitous way. I, I'm a little clumsy. And I'm a member of a theater company in Los Angeles called Theater of Note. And when the Hollywood Fringe Festival came around years ago, pre-Criminal Minds, I decided I, I was going to write a show and have it in the Fringe. And at first it was just me reading some stuff from my journal. And then the next year I did it again. I called it Mess Again. And I wrote a song. The song stayed. And then I put other things in it. And then I did it again the next year and I put other things in it. So it's been like this little living document. The thing that's important to me about it and why I needed to write it and whatever, I, I have this belief that time happens at the same time. And that it, this is another thing that gets me through the day. I like to think that if we can be as gentle and good to ourselves now, that we can go back and we can show all those little parts that didn't get it, that we can heal that timeline. I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if then we could heal the timeline back and generations and stuff like that? I don't know if it's true. It gets me through the day. And also, I had a lot of anxiety growing up, and I still do sometimes, about falling asleep and death and just the magical realism in the good and bad ways that invade my mind. And it was a way for me to work on that. And then in 2016, when the election happened, I really didn't understand why that happened. And I had so much pain about it. And I was like, but all of us don't, all of us isn't there something common? And so then it became this pursuit to me, that play. I wanted to show that play in places that, so I went to Alabama and I did it. I found a theater there and I was like, I'm going to send you this play. This is the play I want to do. I'll give you all the profits and I'll donate to a public school around there. And it was, you know, deeply in the red part of it and did it. And, And it's a lot about, you know, dealing with the external, the fear that's out here and the bad that's out here and and understanding that my inside, my inside contains the monster, right? And the monster's out here because I made it happen. So part of that 2016 thing for me was like, I made this happen through my own ignorance, through my own not participating, through my own ways that I beat myself up on the inside. I've allowed that to happen outside. It was so cool to go into this environment bikers, Jews for Jesus bikers and stuff that watched it that were like, I love this show. And you're like, oh, I know we voted for different people, but we have something. And it kind of proved this idea to me that like, oh, we're, we have all these broken parents and we're all figuring out different ways of dealing with them. And some of our ways was like, no, let's make him run the country because this time we'll do it right or something. I don't know. So that's what it became. And then It's one of those things, like, I haven't done it now in a few years, but I will probably pick it up again and do it again. Because every time I do it, it's, like, clunky. I sent you a thing of, like, I recorded it. I did the best I could, you know. And every time I get a little braver and I can kind of step outside of it and try it again, whenever I've done it, I've only done it in small spaces, you know. And it feels like we did something together, like the room did something together. And to me, that's one of the most valuable things to me about making art. I think it's that thing of being a kid and feeling like no one sees me and no one likes me. Like, I see all of this. And I know you look at me like this now, but I'm not. You know what I mean? And and if you feel like how I did, like, we're all the same thing. And so, like, I love love that. Yeah, you start the show with a song. You get your audience to sing in full-throated voices. These are the lyrics. And we all are a mess, I guess. And we all are a mess, I guess. And we cover up our mess with stuff. And we act like we're totally cool. It's true. 
At three years old, you experience sexual trauma, and in the play you state, there is just me inside me when it happens, some dirty mark that you can make go away. Do you still feel that way? Sometimes. I used to feel that way all the time because I kept it so secret. And I think sometimes I wished I just knew. I I wish everybody knew or I wish it was very specific because I've lost caring how covert or overt it was. I know it was. And I've gone around around my head like, oh, I'm so sensitive. So probably what I did is I probably read his mind. He was probably thinking something bad around me. And then I, and then it's my fault, like all of that. It doesn't matter anymore. It just doesn't, it really doesn't matter. I do know that that has always been, like I've always just felt like me. When something like that happens in your life, I think that whatever higher self angel person that lives inside of you, She just fucking shows up. And whether she can help you or not, you have this moment where you're like, I've just always felt like me. I've never felt like I'm a grown-up, and that was the three-year-old, because the three-year-old was in a grown-up situation where she had to just be like, okay, there's something's happening, like, and I don't know what. So, like, one of the things that I'm able to do is I'm very good buddies with my shame. People can either severely dislike me because they have a hard time with their own shame or they can feel very, I can feel very dear to them. But so on top of the fact that I am the deus ex machina of a TV show where I always save the day, you know, that's why I'm very used to people coming up to me at airports and things and just embracing my body because they have to. You know what I mean? And it's like, it's a little like, whoa. <laughs> also, I think it's because I kind of always feel like, ugh, I'm a little, I'm a little gross, but I'm gonna do that anyway. I'm a little gross, but I'm gonna do it anyway. <laughs> like there's <laughs> always that thing that's that's in there that I'm like, ah, and you probably know that I am. But I'll try to do and maybe I'm not for the next five minutes. Like, but it's I think we thing. all are at the same time. Like yeah. we're all that's that's what we all are. That's yeah. You say that some people see mess and they find it heartbreaking and some people see it and they find it hilarious. But it seems like at at another time you said that your favorite things to make are things that are funny but also hurt a little bit. And so I'm wondering what is it about that combination that intrigues you? Funny and heartbreaking. I I think that the terrible is the funniest, right? Like, I mean, I make jokes. I mean, the most irreverent things is the things that you need to make jokes about, you know? Like... Again, I'm going to quote somebody, but there's a moment in a live Indigo Girls concert where Emily Saylor says, you have to laugh about it because you'd cry your eyes out if you didn't. Yeah. You also wrote a play called Cleo, Theo, and Wu, which has been described as a feminist historical space romp musical. And it is about how we are only as powerful as the least privileged among us, how feminine energy gets attacked, and how we don't give ourselves permission to have righteous rage. But time travel is also a part of Cleo, Theo, and Wu. It's also very much a part of mess in a quantum kind of way. What is it about this sort of multiverse, quantum time, everything, everywhere, all at once-ness that intrigues you so much? My favorite person in the world when I was a kid was my grandpa and he died when I was in fifth grade and then uh, my best friend Michael 
died of AIDS in 96. And I got to be there with him through a lot of that. I mean, no, that's a lie. I got to be with him through some of it and then not. But I was there and we had some talks, you know. We had some big talks about what I was going to go and do. And I remember he wanted me to get a tattoo and he wanted me to become famous. And I remember like, okay, fine. I still don't have a tattoo. Um, and, and he would say, I'm going to make things with you. I'm going to, I'm going to, and he was, he was a musician. He was so, he was the best. When I was a kid, you know, I was terrified of, I wouldn't sleep for long periods. I'm ter- terrified of sleeping at night for both what would happen and just the fall of sleep, the loss of control. So I have a lot of like, I need to know that endedness is not a thing. So even if it is a thing, I think that this is how I get through the day, but I really don't believe it is. And I feel like I have people that I love. I have people that I love that are like the most talented people in the world. Scott McKinley and Judy Levin and and Michael Hammond. And, you know, fuck it, even my dad, who like wanted, wanted to do these things, wanted to make these things, and they, they didn't get to. And this idea, whether it's their own fucking fault or not, because my dad is one of those people, like, when I perform, I'm like, you can show up, but stay over there. But, like, you get to co-mingle with all that energy that's come before you and after you. I really want that to be true. I just want it to be true. And I love Neil deGrasse Tyson enough to believe in the the nonsense that that's not, but I really have decided (laughs) that it is. And I have enough evidence in my own life to prove it. And whether I've made that up or not, I do. And part of that is when I write. And like that theme constantly comes through me. And I do not, like I sit down and it screams at me to write things. Like I don't go like, I want this and this is how this, that's not how it works. Given all the writing you do, in addition to acting, all the plays you've written, all the episodes you've written, do you consider yourself a playwright? Oh, I say that I am. And it's so funny because you could, given all the things, and I'm like, I, I mean, and I'm only saying this out loud because I, I bet there might be someone listening to this who's like, well, I'm not a writer because I've only, and I'm not, I don't feel like a writer. So there. You know what I mean? Like, I don't feel, I feel like a freaking fraud and then you just push through it. I mean, that, you know, another thing that I think about, my therapist, uh, <laughs> talked about one time about beauty because I have these hangups about it. I, growing up, I used to be called ugly so much. And I smelled funny and I had this weird posture and I dressed strange. And like, it was so much a part of who I was. I was so, I was treated like I was so disgusting and I felt so disgusting. And I remember my therapist talking about what real beauty is, is it's like, Believing your one thing and the act of pushing through and acting, giving yourself that right to be in that energy of beauty, which exists in all of us. That's what's beautiful. That's beauty is to watch that tension between not collapsing in your own and moving through it. That's what it is. So I like to think that same thing of being a writer, being anything. It's like the tension of holding on. And I'm only collapsing because I'm sharing it. And I'm going back into it and going, yes, I consider myself a playwright. But that's that's the process I go through is I'm like, I'm not. I was coming here. I'm like, I can't believe I'm going to do this thing. with You're like, push through. You have to push through it because I'm always going to be in this, this little body that does this little dance. You introduced me to a quote from Neil Gaiman, who I also adore, um, who stated that most of writing is getting ready to write. Oh, my God. 
I get ready to write. So there's a lot of getting ready. And I forget to do that. And he's so very good at that stuff. And he's so affirming of people's, you know, things. I remember when he came to mess, he had given me an advanced copy of Ocean at the End of the Lane. And I hadn't read it yet. And I walked out to say hi to him. And he brought Michael Sheen. He brought Michael Sheen. And they're both staring at me like in wonder. And I was like, what's going on? And he said, have you read the book yet? And I said, no. And he said, I didn't think so. And he gave me a hug and he said, this is in the same waters. You you got it from the same waters as Mm. as the book. And it was like, that to me is like such a writer who like can acknowledge the specialness of creation, period, but doesn't have his Neil freaking game and who's not taking ownership of it. It's like, it's mine. It's like, we all go to the water and we get we get what we have, you know what I mean? And we make sure, I think getting ready is like, you make sure your buckets are, you know, properly weatherproofed and you have buckets. And sometimes I come with like a teaspoon and whatever. you got to be like, nope, you got to go get more stuff so you can get more water. It's so interesting because when I was watching Mess, I could understand why Neil loved it. It was so apparent to me and I loved it too. But I want to now, I want to talk about curtains because... In 2020, you wrote and animated your short story, Curtains, and it's been accepted in film festivals around the globe. I really think it's one of the most wonderful things that you've made. And before we start talking about it, I'm wondering if you could share just a little bit high-altitude plotline of the story for our listeners. I had a situation where I... Got in a dangerous situation. You want me to tell them specifically? Yeah, if you yeah. If you so can. I went to a dance class. I was in a particularly weird part, a vulnerable part of my life, and I thought I'm going to go to this dance class and be free and whatever. And I was feeling really good. And I was in one of those you know moments, and I got into a fender bender on the freeway, and it wasn't my fault, but it was like it was a utility truck that hit me, and I was like, go ahead. So I was in this f- fender bender just by myself, basically, because I told the guy who hit me like just go. And, and then, he hit you from behind, by the way. So anybody that hit you from behind oh, is their fault. Sorry. I know that. But he was, it was like a utility truck and he looked terrified. And I'm a fucking girl on a TV show. Like, and I kind of operate like that. Like, I I mean, capitalism has served me well, I guess. But I am a social, I'm like, I'm like, you, we need to share this shit. Like, it, you know what I mean? So yeah, that was going to make his day like really hard. And it was going to be a blip on my radar. So it was like, go, go, go. But my my fender was all jacked up and like I couldn't drive my car and a tow truck came and the cops came at the same time. And then the tow truck wasn't supposed to stop because I was supposed to call for one, but it was there. And he was like the tow trace place right down the street. So I was like, okay. And I was wearing my contacts because I wanted to be like I was trying to be like girly and shit. And sometimes we get told stories, right, that glasses make us look not attra- yeah, yeah, not attractive. Suck it, world. We're with very attractive people. Um, and, and, um, and so I got in the guy's car, the tow truck. I was so panicked. You know how you're shaking. I left my phone. Everything had gotten jostled. And I didn't know where it was. And I, I got in the car. And he didn't take me to... A tow truck place. We drove for a while. He got very aggressive. And I immediately, when I got in the car, I was like, oh my God. Like, I know that world because I've been in trauma, traumatic, you know, I've I've dated people. You know what I mean? I know the energy. So the second I got in the car, the energy changed and I was in suddenly a dangerous situation. And 
And what got me out of it was Criminal Minds. Uh, and and uh, he, I ended up having to convince him that I was on this show because I did not know what, what was going to happen. And um, and he ended up eventually taking me to the tow truck place. And I had written a short story about it, written the short story that the, the film became, uh, and I had performed it once. And people came up afterwards, man, all different kinds of people, like, I, that was really important or that happened to me. And, and I, so whenever that happens, you're like, oh, that I've got to do something else with this. This is important. Like, that's like mess. Like, oh, I got to do something. This isn't done. So I told my friend Brendan, who has this, he has his own little projection, not little, it's impressive, Jigsaw Ensemble. And he said, you you don't want to make this in a regular short film, Kirsten. This should be animated because I know you. You, first of all, will have to lead it, but also you don't want to, you don't want to go through take after take of doing that. It should be animated. And I was like, okay. And then I thought, this is great because the story is not about, I use animals instead of people, which I think is perfect because then you're not looking at, oh, well, it's because he's, I don't know, a guy. In, in the story, the guy speaks not a language that I speak. And I didn't, that's not part of the story. The story is not about, like, that's not part. And it immediately becomes like, it levels the playing field or something. And it was really beautiful because I got to write it direct it, tell the animator specifically this is what it should be. And we actually, we did a scratch recording and that's the recording we used. So I only had to do it once. And then I made it and then Brendan was like, I'm putting it in every single, he was like, put it in every single film festival. And then the pandemic happened. And you know, it's so funny because my manager, my agents, they were like, it's fine, but I don't know. What do you do with it? I was like, it just, I just need the world to see it. I don't, I don't need it. I just, and that's why I make things, which could be a problem, but I'm just like, I just want someone to see it. I, I, and so my intention of getting it out, I wrote every publication, every, but it was like, it didn't get picked up anywhere, but it got into some film festivals. And so I just slapped it up on Vimeo and you can just go, you can just look it up and there it is and you can watch it. And we'll we'll provide a link for our listeners, but it's it's beautiful. Curtains investigates the idea of vulnerability as a source of power, which is your superpower, I think. And the emotional curtains that we lay over our essential selves. And the main character is a cat. Cats are also a recurring theme for you. They're also in mess. So I'm wondering why cats? When I was in fifth grade, my sister got to go back east to a family wedding and I did not go and I had to be alone with my parents for two weeks which required me to hide in trees and gather food from from the yard and uh one of those days uh there was a um god my mom's gonna mom I love you so much um (laughs) we were all going through it we were all going through it um and someone abandoned the cat we lived right by a field and someone abandoned a cat in, in the front yard, and they had slammed the car door on its tail, and so its tail was hanging off. My mom took it to the vet, got it fixed up, and they had to shave the little amputated tail, look like a little sausage on his butt, and I named him Gink. And he saved my life, that cat. Like, he drooled on me, he held me, he loved me, he liked to nurse on my clothes, and he became this giant beast of a cat, and very masculine, and very trained on me. So no matter what was happening in that house, it was like I had a dire wolf who was just like there, like who was witnessing everything. Mm. And it was really 
valuable to my upbringing to have a masculine energy, a positive masculine energy, because I was not raised with someone who cherished me. I had to learn how people, I mean, I'm still learning, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm way farther ahead now, but like, oh my God, I did online dating during the pandemic and I taught myself so many things about masculine and feminine and being queer and all, oh my God, like, but like, and I use even through that, like, the gink energy. Like, do they have the gink energy? Um, I recently, in, in Criminal Minds, we have a kitten in some of the episodes, and he was a rescue cat. They got a black little rescue cat, and then they were going to send him back to the shelter. I took that cat home. I now have I four know. cats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and his name is Gink. Um, oh, yeah. good. I, I, I've had a couple of soul animals over the course of my life, and as I'm getting older now and going into like the third or the fourth round of a new pet, I'm starting to think, oh, maybe I can bring back some of those old names oh, that I yeah. love so much. <laughs> the only hard part is they have to live up to the name. Yes. And so he's still like, it's a yes. big mantle. Yo. Very big. Yeah. 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 The last thing I want to talk with you about is your work with Theater of Note. You mentioned it before. You've been a member of the theater for over 20 years. How did you first become involved with the organization? When you're in Los Angeles and you're an actor, you need places to do it, especially when no one's calling you to do it anywhere else. So that is a really great space to do it at. And I had a friend years ago who was a reviewer, and she said, you should you should audition at Note. And I went, I did, and, um, and then I went to a play there, and it was like they were doing this play called Clytemestra at Home, which was a retelling of Clytemestra. It was like so amazing. And I, I was uh, – and it was just this tiny – black box with one bathroom and the fact that they could reorient the stage and you could be anywhere in this black box. I'm very into like, you know, like I like to make clothes like my, I like to, I mean, I'm not a sewer, but like I'll cut a thing off or like I like to do things my own way and that like sort of nothing there that you could just create stuff um, was very appealing to me and I stayed and and also it was like acting class you know because you're working with all different kinds of people all different kinds of acting levels and I just stayed and also theater is like it's so important it's the beginning of conversations I did a play there called fucking wasps and it was about Kinsey and I remember we worked on it for like like six months and we were opening and no one was coming and I didn't have any money and I watched them plaster the movie Kinsey billboard up across the street. And I was like, we made that happen. (laughs) Like the collective unconscious of theater is so valuable. And it's one of the places where people of different upbringings, cultures, races, ages, you're all together in the same space. I mean, church is like that, I guess, but like theater is so specific because you're all in love with the same thing. And it forces you to make a community, to make a family. And it's so important that we have places like that and people don't force themselves to be in that. And I realized when I was doing Criminal Minds, like there's art and there's commerce mm. and like it's not always going to fill your art well. And Note is its own, you know, group of bananas. But I chose to stay there and be a member because it's like it's it gives back to me. People go, oh, it's so great that you're. No, it it's part of my street cred. It makes me cool that I get to hang out with those people. And they do relevant and sometimes clunky and so whatever stuff. But it's like, those are the people. I want to hang out with the people that are willing to get in the middle of the arena for the sheer purpose of doing it. Not because someone's going to come, not because someone's going to, you know, not because you're getting accolades or getting paid for it. And like, I feel really passionately about that. Kirsten Vangsness, thank you so much for making so much work that matters. 
And thank you for joining me today on oh Design. My God, what a pleasure. What a dream. You can learn more about Kirsten Vangsness and all the work she has done on her website, kirstenvangsness.com. You can currently see her in the world premiere of The Plain Nimrod at the Theater of Note in Hollywood, California. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyman. For millennia, we have debated the link between our mental, physical, and spiritual health. So where are we now? We're going to have major breakthroughs in the ability to integrate the whole mind. What does consenting look, feel, and sound like for me, and how do I recognize that in other people? I think of it as energy. Are we amplifying our energy? Are we diminishing our energy? Mind, Body, Spirit, a three-part series on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.